this is episode number 10 with the very special Don Elgin. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. Don Elgin is a two-time Paralympian, Para World Championships gold medalist, he's a motivational speaker, board member for multiple charities, founding director of Star Amp Global, and a father of four. This episode will have you floating between big belly laughs and teary moments. Don's humour is infectious, and we started off with some funny facts about his family home where we were for this chat. In this episode, you will learn... How a mindset of abundance and gratitude can shape your destiny. Tips on how to optimize relationships in your life. The difference between motivation and inspiration and the importance of these concepts. How the quality of questions is directly related to the quality of our life. We also talk about Don's most important mentors and how they've helped him on his successful journey. Some very deep personal experiences that led Don to consider his own life at age 11 and how a verbal smack around the ears completely shifted his perception of his reality. I've split this unapologetically long episode into two parts for your listening convenience. This is a great story that will have you intrigued about Don's understanding of human behavior and the importance of how and why genuinely connecting with human beings is so powerful, especially in this day and age. Don Elgin, thanks for sharing your time with us. Seriously, we're actually a bit excited. I'm a lot excited. It's it's unusual to be in a room in such prestigious company where you just know that this is going to be fun. It is going to be fun. And you said in a room, let's talk about the room that we're in. I'm extremely grateful to be here in your home and surrounded by your amazing family. We could have picked a better room than the toilet, but I'm glad. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to tell everyone, but uh, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> the disco light in there. Not many people will believe that, but I've actually got a disco light in my toilet. Yes, actually, for everyone listening, I did have the experience. There is a disco light in the toilet of Don Elgin's home. I just figure that too many times we we take it too serious going to the toilet. <laughs> we should have a bit of fun with it. So I told the girls one day, I've got three daughters, so I told them, I said, I'm going to liven things up for the next time you go for number twos. And my eldest walked out and goes, Dad, you're f- uh, that's amazing. <laughs> that light, <laughs> she, she was beside herself. So I knew I hit the spot. Absolutely. It's an experience to, uh, to be able to boogie when you uh, go to the <laughs> toilet. Now, Don, I've known you since 2006. We shared experiences on the Australian Paralympic uh, World Championships team in Holland. You were there as an athlete, and I believe this was your last World Championships as a para-athlete, and I was there as a 20-year-old on my first trip as a staff member, and 2006 was a blast. 
But I would say our relationship grew strongest in 2012 when you came to London Paralympics as a team manager for the Australian team. And I think that's where we went from being acquaintances to uh, bloody good mates. Yeah, I think it took that long. From 2006, I was having therapy right through to 2012 on the back of the fact that I met you then. (laughs) And by 2012, my therapist said, mate, you, you cook, there's not much we can do for you. So I just I threw it out and just went with it. And I thought, well, we might as well just be mates then. I can't beat him, I'll join him. So <laughs> it's been a cracking time. I'll tell you what, I mentioned on the intro that how awesome it is to be in your company because just being around like-minded people, it doesn't matter if you you know people march to our same beat or they march to an entirely different one, they'll find that whenever you're in the company of people that get what you've got to say, then – the conversation flows, there's good energy, There's there always seems to be a way that a conversation will go to another place. It, it goes from being just shallow, talk about the weather and, you know, the footy and, and, and a bit of reality to going, hang on, let's actually talk about how we're travelling as humans. And I've always found that we've been able to do that really well and it's been a lot of fun. So interesting but fun. I'm intrigued by your sense of human behaviour and we're definitely going to delve into that in this chat. I want to go back to the very first day. Don, I want you to tell us where you were born and what condition you were born with. Well, I was I was born with a uh, shitload of awesomeness. That wasn't anything to do with myself. That's just how it is. So I can't. <laughs> I can't get away from that. No, I don't. I don't typically speak a lot about my birth because, well, it's weird. It's weird when you're a parent and you've got your own kids and you sort of, then you start critiquing your parents. And like I was born in a little country town called Donald. And why I say my birth was weird is because my dad's name is Donald. And I'm named after my dad. My name is Donald and I was bloody born in Donald. So I think that's weird. And then, of course, I've got a sister called Donna and I just go, <laughs> what were they thinking? So, yeah, we've we've had some issues. Um, but seriously, I, I look at my life and go, I often refer to the fact that I've been born with a head start. And the head start, many would consider, yeah, it'd be the fact that you're born without half your leg and I was also born without my thumb on my left hand, my fingers on both my hands were stuck together and not quite formed properly. And then about four years of age, I had open heart surgery. But that for me, you know, physically may have been the head start, but reality was my parents' attitude. My parents' attitude from the day I was born was, well, this is it. Let's just go with it. Let's not look and and try and find out why. Let's not blame anyone. Let's just, because all the answers to all the questions in the world are not going to grow your leg back. So mate, this is how it is. You're going to have to deal with it. And mate, if that's not a head start from the day dot to come into the world with going, bad luck mate, you're our kid, you're black, you're white, you're, you're fat, you're whatever, this card's been dealt, then, I mean, when we learn that at any point in life, then we start to take control of our life. And I was forced to learn it from day dot, maybe because of the circumstances. And really the the interesting thing, and, and we'll talk no doubt about the couple of books I've written, but when I went to research that, I spoke to mum about my birthday and I said, mum, what was, what was it like? You know, what was the, the real deal? And she said, well, 
she said something to me that was the most shocking thing I think I've heard come from her about her life. So imagine this beautiful young lady, 22, 23 years of age. She's up to her third kid. I'm the third out of five, clearly best looking, and the only one missing bits. And then the day she goes into hospital to have me, there's no early warnings. There's no uh, ultrasounds in the country towns, 1975, no ultrasounds, no like Don Rose, your third kid's going to be missing bits. Um, it, it just, they didn't know. So it was complete shock. And, and mum said the shock wasn't so much. Yes. When I was born, they rushed me away and she didn't get to hold me and all the normal sort of stuff. But and come a couple of days later when, before I was taken down to the children's hospital, my dad drove me from Donald down to the children's hospital in Melbourne. And Hang on, so Donald drove Donald from Donald to the hospital, is that it. right? That's exactly how it works. So <laughs> clearly I go by the name of Don Elgin as opposed to Donald because, uh, seriously. <laughs> but it's um, it was really bizarre because mum said, yeah, I remember the, the day, but the thing that's most vivid about your birth is when one of the sisters come up to me in the hospital and she said, you know, you don't have to take him home if you don't want, you know, you, it'll be okay if you want to leave him here. And mum's just gone, bullshit, that's my kid, you know, that's my oh, yeah. boy, he's coming home with me. So from, from almost day one, mum started the fight on my behalf and and I, like that's not wasted on me. I look at the the battles they had just for me to go to school, to do the same things all the normal kids, my brother and my sister or sisters were doing and for me to fit in because we sit here today in the comfort of, you know, the toilet. No, but my, my <laughs> office. And and the, the truth is we find it hard to believe that that conversation could even take place. But that's how society's changed so much in, in the 40 years that I've been on the earth. But it really have and we, we've seen incredible changes so they're the sort of things that that wake you up as a human and, and get you thinking about how fortunate you really are that not only was I born in Donald but in Victoria but in in Australia to my parents parents that thought well we're just going to do the best we can we won't wrap him up in cotton wool we'll just get on and go with it so mate I'm forever looking at life and just going, shit, I got out of this, all right. So you obviously had really good support from your parents from day dot. How was it growing up in a small country community being a little bit different, as you put it, being born with some bits missing? Yeah, well, the good thing for us is that we moved from Tokemal very early, uh, sorry, from Donald very early in my life. We ended up living in Tokemal. So Tokemal was my home. There was 1,200 and a half people in Tokemal. I was the half. Um, it, <laughs> it was a sort of, you become part of the furniture, you know, in that little country town and, you know, that part of the furniture. I was the furniture that had the dodgy leg. That's the bit of bloody furniture I was. But it, it was good because everyone knows what you're up to. In those days, if you're stuffed up, there was somebody that would – it wasn't even about telling the cops. If the word got home to your parents, you were going to be in the shit. So, you know, people had your back, and I love that about the bush. That's the way it is still today. Um, the big thing growing up and having that support was my my brother and my sisters. I, I've got three sisters, and all of us are, are close, all really good mates, get along, all different people, very different people. But all we were brought up, my dad had a rule in our family is no matter what you do, is you bloody stick together. 
and I really I took that a lot from him. Like he siblings died when he was young. They had pneumonia, both of his brother and his sister. So he grew up as an only child, in and out of a spot of bother. You know, as he's growing up and finding his ways in the world. And he made sure that, like, we had stuff all, but we had each other. And so I always had, you know, my brother, and if we were in, you know, in any punch-ons with anyone, and which from time to time happened in country towns, he's sort of working it out, I knew, you know, my brother and my sisters weren't too far away. So, yeah, it was a... How, how were the other kids at school? How were you treated from a young age? Well, I reckon I was treated... All right, to be honest. I mean, we also, we ran the Togmore Caravan Park and swimming pool complex. So we had the public swimming pool. So if you wanted to swim in our swimming pool, then it's not in your best interest to be a turd to me because you would have been barred, mate. (laughs) Mum wouldn't have let him in. But it was, um, it's a sort of place that I was fair game, you know, and honestly, you rock up to a little town to, to school, not so much as a kid, because as a kid, I went to kinder or preschool before school. And so all the kids that were going to be in my class, I met them when, you know, we were four years old. So by the time you're five and six and you're going off to school, like, you know, there's a one little black kid, Ravi, the Indian, you know, in our town. And his dad was the doctor. And, you know, there's Donnie, the one-legged kid. And, and you know, Cal and Maury and, and so you grow up as as just being one of the kids and you, if you get around that group early enough the issues aren't really issues like four-year-olds don't have a single issue in the world about someone's race religion body bits missing they couldn't give a rats you know you want to play yeah all right done and that's the introduction that kids have so I had that introduction. It probably wasn't till high school that, or actually it was, tell a lie, it was um, my first real smack in the face of of being, you know, bullied. And I definitely there's a difference between being teased and being bullied. But for me, it come when I finally made the school rep team to play footy. We played the Catholic school and they gave it to me. I was a freak and they really let me know that I was different and and. For the first time in my life, I actually hated my life and I never realised that I was 11 years of age. I never realised how mean people could be and I remember coming home from my my first game of rep footy, which I thought would be bloody great, you know, walked and marched down to the other school, we were all pumped up and I got home and I hated life and it, it pains me to say this, but 11 years of age, I was working out which way I was going to commit suicide and... It got to me so much. I, I remember sitting on, as I said, we had the caravan park and swimming pool and there was three boxes of Coca-Cola, like 1.25 litres of Coca-Cola we put in the fridge and sell. And I'm sitting there in the kiosk and Dad walked in on bawling and he goes, what's wrong, mate? Why are you sucking? I said, it's not fair. I said, why me? It's the first time I'd asked myself or asked anyone this question in my life and it was at 11 years of age and I said, why did it have to be me? Why not my brother? And when I think about this now, I hate the thought that I would have wanted my pain to be on somebody else. But I sure as hell didn't bloody want it on me that day. I said, why not one of my sisters? There's three of them. They all got two legs. You know, why couldn't I have the, the two legs? And um, and Dad said to me, he did probably a stroke of genius as a parent. He didn't wrap me up in cotton wool and go, it's going to be okay, mate. You know, you'll get a new leg. None of that crap. He said, well, why not you? It's only a bit of your leg. And I thought, shit, I hadn't really thought of it like that. It's only a bit of my legs. So straight away that got me thinking, imagine if I had no legs. Imagine if I had no arms or couldn't see or like, yeah, actually, it's only a bit of my leg. What am I worried about? But then he said this bit. He said, you've got a good attitude. You can deal with it. I thought, 
I never even thought about attitude, whether I had a good one or a bad one, or it never even registered to me. So that day, me having a good attitude was the words that went around in my head. At the at my lowest point, the words I heard was, "You'll be right. It's only a bitty leg, and you've got a good attitude. You can deal with it." And so from then, I just started changing, totally changing the way I see the world. I never ever wanted anybody else to have my pain. And I'm bloody wrapped that my dad gave me that verbal smack around the ears because it literally was a game changer. Sounds like your dad was a big influence in your life and particularly at that age when you're a, a young kid. Before we move into your sporting career, while we're talking about kids, you have four legendary kids uh, and a beautiful first wife. And I believe you've got a 20th wedding anniversary coming up. Is that right? We do, yeah. I keep saying I put on Facebook all my social media, so it's my beautiful first wife. And I put that out there and so many people have only got one wife, but all the rock stars seem to have two or three. And I just go, oh, I keep telling her, like, you know, you're my first, but can't be sure you're going to be the last. And (laughs) seriously, I'm pretty quietly confident one day she's going to trade me in. So, But up until then, yeah, I uh, and people who meet me, they go, geez, you get along well with your first wife, don't you? Like in all the photos, I go, Oh, clearly you don't know me well enough. It's my only bloody wife. But yeah, 20 years coming up, which is, uh, well, we've probably just ticked it over, which is really, really exciting to uh, to think that, you know, anyone who says you can't propose at a petrol station and make it last is kidding himself. So uh, yeah, that, that's been good. And, you know, for me, I can tell you now, my my influence from my dad the way and my mum, the way they bought us kids are, is exactly how I roll with my kids. Mate, clear, here's the boundaries, you cross that, here's your receipt. And if the receipt's good enough, they'll stop crossing the boundaries. So it's, uh, I never want to suppress my kids from being themselves. I like the fact that they push the boundaries because, you know, I live by the motto, if you follow all the rules, you miss half the fun. So I I can't expect that they're going to be um, anything other than people that are going to live and push the boundaries and live on the edge. But I'm... I don't know that there's a greater compliment as a human than someone saying, geez, you've got good kids. And you go, yep, thank you very bloody much, you know, because that doesn't come easy. It's a tough thing to be a parent and even more so today you've got people telling you how you should bring up your kids and uh, I think if you've had good parents, you don't stray too far from the way they did it. And your kids, are you've got a boy who's four and then you've got three girls, is that right, 10, 15 and 18? Spot on, that's it. And we call... Uh, we call the, the youngest, or Hayden, the boy, we call him the golden child. Well, actually, I called him that and just I think it was just to wind the girls up a bit and they <laughs> hate it, so I keep doing it. So, no, they all think they're the golden child, but honestly, I think the, the fact that they are the way they are is what, you know, puts a smile on my doll every day. So, your kids are your best mates, your wife is your best mate, your best mates are your best mates. Talk to us about relationships. What what is it that allows your relationships to flourish? I think the the key is recognising what role people play in your life. I think um, we we have this distorted view in the world that there's one person and they're going to be they're going to be everything that you're you're going to marry your soulmate. Well, I'm not convinced that I did marry my soulmate. I married a woman that I love greatly. We share incredible things together, but there's areas of our life that we 
the conversation doesn't really go anywhere. And we're both comfy with the fact that if I want to go and talk religion, then that's not her forte. I'll go and speak to one of my mates and, and that is his forte or, you know, the different beliefs about different things. So I think the key to relationships is understanding what role that relationship plays in your life. And if you get that, then life's bloody awesome. My, my job with my kids is not to be their best mate. My job is to be the best dad I can be and to give them what I believe they need to survive in the world. If I do that right when they're kids, then they will be my best mates when they're older. And, and that for me, like that's how a relationship should work. Your eldest daughter actually picked me up from the train station today to bring me here. So we had a bit of time to chat. And, How'd that uh, go? Yeah, it was, I tell you what, it was enlightening. <laughs> <laughs> She's a good character. Uh-huh. But uh, we got chatting about a bit of adventure that you guys had uh, earlier this year that we'll talk about shortly. But she said to me, I wasn't probing her for this, and she said to me, Dad is the best role model I could ever ask for. I love him. That just came out of her mouth. I, I definitely wasn't probing her for that. So that just sort of highlighted to me that best mate relationship that you've got. Yeah, I think the the thing, and I'm I'm rapt to hear that. And I think one thing that we've done right from day dot is I've never gone to my kids. Oh, Google Gaga. It's like, nah. You know what? You're a you're a little mini human, and we'll speak the language that you're going to understand. But we're going to speak the language that you're going to need to survive. So, from from as far back as I can remember, I've spoke to my kids with honesty. If they're smart enough to ask a question, then they deserve the the true answer. And uh, and sometimes that's a bit confronting. You go, righto. Uh, we also have a no no taboo policy. So at my kitchen table, I mean, we got from from eighteen down to four. If one of them is having a conversation about anything, then the other three get educated about it. And you know what they take from that conversation. That's up to them and where their brains at, their mature maturity level to be able to deal with it. But that's how I grew up. Like I found out about condoms sitting at my kitchen table because my brother had a date coming up. I was like, "Whoa, there we go." So, <laughs> and then of course that prompts a whole lot of more questions. And I love the fact that we just call a spade a spade. That's reality. Mm. Great way to bring up kids. All right, let's discuss your sport career briefly. So you had quite a decorated career in the Paralympic world. I was the only one decorating it, mate. I'll give you a tip. <laughs> <laughs> give us a snapshot of your time as an athlete and how this has shaped you as a human. Yeah, I think the the bonus about being born in this country, missing bits, and one thing's for sure is we're nuts about sport and if you – if if you're somebody who is nuts about sport, like my old man would say to me, oh, you know, you work hard, you you might be able to buddy go places with it. And it was funny because when my when I first started into Paralympic in that Paralympic space, I always had the belief that unless I could beat my brother, then I wasn't competitive. My brother's not buddy has no disability, not he's got all his bits. But so my benchmark was able-bodied people. It was never like, okay, if I can beat disabled people, I'm going okay. It's like, nah, if I can bloody mix it with anyone, then I'm going okay. So I would often get my ass kicked in a lot of things and I figured, well, I'm just not good enough. And people would go, oh, it's okay, Don, you've got one leg. It's like, no shit, Sherlock, but I still want to win. So that drive to want to play footy with my mates was never – I never looked for that that free ticket or that that tokenistic, oh, here you go because you've got one leg. It's like, nah, you know, what if I can't 
cut the mustard. If I'm not there, then I bloody shouldn't be there. So, and oh, maybe it's country upbringing, maybe it's the the era that I grew up in, but it allowed me to love sport for what it is. And when you when you love what you do, then you're willing to do it probably more than anyone else who's just turned up going through the motion. So, the the desire to represent my country that come about after hearing people say oh don you know like if you get a chance to go to the paralympics you should do it and the more they told me about the paralympics and what it was all about the more i'm just going that is me to a teammate and i'll make decisions in a heartbeat and and that's the the decisions made there's nobody you know procrastination thinking about it for days on end not you like right let's do this done and we lock it in so i was locking in decisions about where i wanted to be four years out based on the fact that this could be awesome fun. You know, I fortunately, I mean, a snapshot of my career was that I went to three Paralympic Games. My first one was in 1996 in Atlanta. Then I competed in my home country in, in Sydney in 2000, then Athens in 2004. I went to four world champs, the first one in 1994 in Berlin, and then 98 in Birmingham and in the UK, and then uh, 2002 in France, in Lille, and then in 2006 in uh, where we met Robbo in Holland, and uh, and so that and that really for me that was bloody amazing. Uh, not meeting you, but the fact that <laughs> I, no the uh, the chance I I also got to carry the flag at that uh, that games and that oh, was coincidence. Yeah. So did I carrying flags. <laughs> you know a bit about that, mate. That was a that was a great time, but to um, you know to have a career like that, you you look at it and just go that was bloody amazing, and it was based on loving what I did. And the interesting thing was is that, you know, we spoke about our friendship kicking off in 2012, really going places. The It was 2012 that I went to those games. So I missed Beijing in 2008. I just – I had surgery in 2006 after I got back from Holland. I couldn't get fit enough and I was just – I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I'm, I've been to three games. And what really hit me is that when I missed out on Beijing, I didn't cry myself to sleep. I didn't go to sleep that night crying, devastated. I figured, well, if it doesn't hurt you that much, then you don't deserve it. You didn't want it enough in the first place. And so um, that for me was a clear thing to say, okay, we'll wrap it up, mate. It's not like you've got much to prove. I mean, unfortunately, I was around the top three in pretty much every outing that I had um, throughout the, you know, most of all the Paralympic Games anyway and, and a few of the world champs. And so it was a, a real opportunity for me then to say, I'm done. I'll just let it go. But the weird thing about being an athlete is we all have that fire in our belly. And every now and then you get that motivation. It's like fuel being poured in through your ears, through your eyes. And those smells that invoke those those memories. And you go, I want that. You know, you see an interview on telly, you hear something, a, a cracking podcast, and you go, I want what if, what he's had or what she's done, you know. And and so I had that fuel and and it burnt really strong throughout those three games. But then when I missed out, the fuel wasn't there, but the pilot light was still burning. And I genuinely believed that I wasn't done yet and got home from London. And then about a month and a half, or actually about two months later, I had a call from the head coach and he said, listen, one of your events is on at next year's Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. And I said, oh, I don't care, get stuffed. And, um, and 
Uh, when he said one of my events, I was a multi-event athlete, so I did the pentathlon, shot put, discus, 100, 400, and long jump. It's all in the one day, and that's the below-knee amputee pentathlon. And it's a bloody cracking event, and what makes it so challenging is you can be still in the hunt for a medal, even if you've had crap events throughout the day, you've really got to be able to process that and move on to the next event. And I I really liked that. I liked the the fact that the pentathlon challenged me equally as much mentally as it did physically. And when I thought about this this phone call, the last thing I said to the head coach was, well, what's the qualifying standard? And he told me what it was, and it was a below it was below my personal best that I'd ever done in my career. And admittedly, I hadn't touched a discus for six years. And I hung up the phone. I rang my wife. I said, Boof, we've got this pretty next So day. just to clarify, what's your wife's name? My wife's name is Denise, but we call her Boof. Okay. Every yeah, my life was really boring, and then Boof, I met her. Ah, <laughs> right. right. Um, so anyway, I said to Boof, I said, "Mate, I've got this chance to. There's a an event for leg amputees at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, and her parents are Scottish, and actually, I still can't understand what a word comes out of her mum's mouth, mate. She's got that accent, and it's just like, what does she just said? That real." broad body Scottish accent. Anyway, good humans. And I had a uh, that conversation with Buff and I honestly I said to her, I said, what do you reckon? You want to have a crack? And I expected her to say, listen, mate, you've gone to three games, four wheelchairs, whatever. Like, why don't you just come be dad? You know, like forget about it. And, um, and I would have respected that and said, yep, sweet, I get it. Instead, she turned around and said, yeah, why not? And I thought, you bloody river. So I hung up the phone. So within literally probably five minutes I'd decided I was making a comeback and I decided that I was going to give it absolutely everything but I wanted to see whether or not I could do things differently to how I'd always done it so what we're fortunate as athletes is we get in into the system the system being the institute of sport so I had a scholarship at the Victorian Institute of Sport I was there on a one-year scholarship for 12 years so I think I did okay <laughs> out of that so one of the longest serving scholarship holders I was and and you know that you're going to have your your physio your nutrition you're going to have coaches you're going to have ice baths weights you're going to have all this access to stuff and I figured yeah well you know what Athletes should be bloody good. They've got these opportunities. I thought, is it possible for a suburban dad who realistically, after not doing it, doing any sport for six years, is it possible to make it into an Australian team? So I decided I was going to use – I wasn't going to apply for a scholarship and I was quietly confident I would have been allowed back in because, you know, as an alumni athlete, they, they would have allowed me. And I spoke to the powers to be and they did say, Don, you're welcome anytime. So I knew that was an option. I said, could I go to a local PT, a gym? Could I go and get a, a guy who's never coached before? Can I do this off my own back? And I went to a prosthetist who – a prosthetist is somebody who makes artificial limbs – and I spoke to this guy, Richard, who used to throw discus. And I said, mate, do you want – this is 18 months out from Glasgow. I said, do you want to coach a Commonwealth Games athlete? That's what I said to him. I wasn't – already wasn't one, but I that's <laughs> I just thought I'm not going to embark on this and not bloody be there. You know, so in my head I'd already checked in and said, oh, I got this. And I think there's an element of, of well – it borderlines confidence slash arrogance for every athlete to believe they can do something. Otherwise, the world will tell you you can't do it. So you need to own the fact that you can. And then I went to my PT mate and I said, mate, 
you want to get me fit and strong? I'm going to go to the Commonwealth Games. And both of them said, yeah, all right. And I sort of had that way of sort of influencing their decision, getting them around. But they thought they'd be in for the ride. And it got down to I, I spent the summer um, trying to qualify, going to Grand Prix circuits and, and competing all over the place and missing qualifying. I was missing every single time and I hadn't qualified. Went to nationals, still missed out. and thought, oh, sugar, it's getting tight now. And then there was the, the first team was announced at the end of nationals and then there was about a month before the next, the final team was been, be selected. I got down to the very last weekend of competition and there was a competition up in Queensland and one in Hobart. I'd already been to both of those places trying to qualify and I hadn't done it. I thought, right, I bought a one-way ticket to Brisbane. I thought if I don't get it there, I'll fly down. Oh, that was on Saturday. I'll fly down Saturday night to Hobart, compete on Sunday. If I don't get it there, I'll come home. I'll sit my family down and say, guys, I had a crack. I missed it. Got to Brisbane and qualified by four centimetres. And, uh, of course, I come straight home, didn't worry about going to Hobart. And it was just that feeling of, you know, I didn't even need my accreditation around my neck, but I knew that my fire could go out for an elite athlete and it would be okay. I would be able to retire without always looking over my shoulder thinking, I could still do that. Like, I I know that I couldn't do that. I know the standards moved up. But to be able to get in there and qualify, shit, I was happy. And to be able to do it on the terms that I'd set myself, you know, outside the system, it uh, it gave me belief that any one of us can do anything if we apply ourselves and and surround ourselves with the people that have the skills to, to facilitate that success. Anything is possible. What I liked most about that, when I saw that you qualified, I saw a photo of you and your wife, your beautiful first wife, and your kids, and there was so much pride there. And I remember still sending you the message saying, I'm extremely proud of you for what you've done, for the leadership that you show for your kids, because what a lesson that teaches them for you to be able to dig deep and qualify in that regard. But what what do you feel like sport does for kids? Because I mean, I'm here in your local community and uh, in your local village, and we've just come back from the the local Oz Kick, which for our international listeners, it's junior league of the Australian Rules Football, and we've been watching your young fella run around out there, and all three of your daughters and even your wife have been talking about netball that they're all getting up to play tomorrow morning. What does sport do for society in general for those who aren't striving to be elite Olympic or Paralympic athletes? Well, I think sport allows people to to engage. It allows a pursuit to a vehicle to pursue if if you want to. So if you aspire to do great things and there's the vehicle to be able to do that. But it's a leveller. The thing I love the most about sport is even our greatest athletes on the planet, even our Formula One drivers, you, you pick any sports person in the world, at some point that person didn't know the rules. At some point that person was shit at what they do. No one picks up a footy and just drills it first kick. Nobody jumps in a car and drives Formula One. Like, we all start at the same place, yet we're too quick to forget that. We're too quick to to see where we end up as opposed to where we start. And I, I love the fact that sport allows people an opportunity to, to challenge themselves, but it allows everybody to be on a level keel at some point. And that, for me, is really important because it doesn't, it doesn't matter how many bits you've got. If you want to get involved, then 
might you'll make it work and sport allows us to do that let's talk a little bit about your training just one particular aspect of your training that i'm intrigued by that included skipping can you tell us a story about how you learned how to skip yeah my old man used to be a boxer and and a football player and from time to time the two at the same time and <laughs> he would uh, he would often say to me he'd, he'd drop in at my house and say oh how you going i'd let him know and i always had this a bit of a um I don't know, self-doubt. I'd look at the other athletes that I was competing against, the multi-event athletes, and they always just seemed to be built like brick shit houses, like that that lean, big, strong athlete. And I always looked at me as somebody who just hadn't filled out. I didn't have the same uh, – admittedly, once upon a time, I did have a six-pack and I, I was in ripping shape, but I never felt like I was. When I looked in the mirror, I didn't see, you know, that big, strong guy. But when I'd look at my competitors, I thought, shit, they got me. So strength for me come – from my mental games, but I always wanted to be bigger and stronger. And I said to my old man one day, I said, oh, mate, I just, I just feel like I'm not quite there. And he said, why don't you take up boxing? I go, mate, I'm training 12 times a week. When am I bloody, I work full time, I've got kids. When am I going to take up boxing? He said, oh, I reckon you should take it up. It'll help you get fit and strong. And you know when someone's right about something, they don't, they don't bang on about it. They just get a bit smug because they just know, oh, I'm ready, right, you should do it. One day you'll go, yeah, thanks, Dad. Anyway, he had that sort of smugness about him. I thought he's bloody onto something because, you know, admittedly all the boxes that I've seen, they're, they're fit and strong and they're, and they're bigger than I was. And I thought, oh, that's what I wanted. So I spoke to my coaches and I was able to take up boxing. I went along and went to a little suburban buddy backyard gym and I met a bloke by the name of Johnny Hoyne. And Johnny Hoyne for me, is one of those men that I love. Like, he's just got a story for every day of his life. He was 70 plus. He had arthritic body knuckles he'd punched on in his lifetime. And he was tough, but hard of gold. Like, you just you just knew this guy was old school and his fair income. And he had time for me, and I love that. And anyway, we'd talk after every session. And, and while I'm standing there having a chat with him, I'd watch all the, the other boxers in the gym. They'd go and get their skipping rope. They'd go outside and skip. And as a showman, like, I look at that and I go, that is awesome. You know, when somebody is just, they're, they're skipping and they're millimetres off the ground and they're, and they're bouncing on both feet and you get that, <laughs> then they're crisscrossing on the side and I just go, oh, I really liked what I was seeing. But I couldn't skip. I'd never skipped in my life. And it bloody annoyed me. It annoyed me that something that looks so cool, I couldn't do it. And I'm not the type of person who goes around going, oh, yeah, I'm disabled, have a look at me. But this was one time in my life I actually felt disabled. I, I felt like I couldn't do what everybody else could do. And I, that's a rare for me in my life because I'd gone, yeah, you can do it, I can do it. And I was a bit frustrated. I went up to Sydney and I spoke to um, the guy who makes my legs, Professor Leg. I spoke to the professor. I said, mate, his name's not really Professor Leg. That's his nickname because he makes bloody good legs. I gave him that nickname and it's taken off. Anyway, I said to the professor, I said, mate, how come I can't skip? And professor said, oh, no, nah, Donnie, amputees don't skip, mate. It's too much on your stump. Oh, fair enough. I went and seen Doc Millens. Dr. David Millen is an orthopedic surgeon. He chops legs off for a living. He does a good job. And I, I said to the doc, I said, Doc, how come I can't skip? I got along really good with the doc. And the doc said, oh, no, nah, Donnie, amputees don't skip, mate. It's too much on your stump. That's what professor said. Righto. I went off to uh, a few amputee mates. I said, can you lot skip? They go, nah, amputees don't skip, Donnie. Why? So it's too much on our stump, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> right, I went back and seen Johnny. I'm out training one day. I said, Johnny, how come I can't skip? And what he said next changed the way I think. He said, because you haven't learnt it yet. I waited. I waited for him to bang on about, oh, too much on your stump. You know what the, the echo was? Nothing. I said, is that it? I just haven't learnt it. He goes, yep. I said, well, I better learn it. Went and got a skipping rope, went outside, and I had a crack at skipping. That night, I fell over. I hit the deck four times. I hung my skipping rope up and I said, stuff that, skipping's overrated. Then the next day, I thought, oh, I'll have another crack. The next day, I only fell over three times. I thought, I reckon I can get this. Got to the point that I can skip. I can skip really well. And I took my skipping rope up. It took me a while to get to that point, but I took my skipping rope up to the professor. I said, Professor, come with me, mate. I took him out the car park and bit of crisscross side to side. He's going, oh, Dotty, that's good, mate. That's pretty good. He goes, and he had one of those sort of light bulb moments. He goes, we've got a conference coming up. All the doctors in New South Wales will be coming to our conference. He goes, I'd like you to come up for it. I live in Melbourne. He's in Sydney. I said, Professor, I said, you make my legs, mate. I said, I'll go to conference all around the world having a chat. Oh, but he come up for you. What would you like me to say? He said, I don't want you to say anything. I just want you to skip. They flew me from Melbourne up to Sydney just to bloody skip on stage, mate. I couldn't believe it. Talk about a junk. It was awesome. The, <laughs> that, that for me was the, the bit that I realised that, you know, as humans, we're so quick to ask everybody else for questions and, and I'm, I'm a fan of that but we accept their answers and I think unless we ask ourselves the exact same question we're willing to ask anybody else then we're not ever going to get a complete answer couldn't agree more I love it I'm a big believer that the quality of our lives is directly related to the quality of the questions we ask ourselves mm. and by asking other people we we do learn and we gauge uh, navigate through the world but I think you're spot on there Let's talk about uh, your time now with other sort of communities outside of your sport. So I know that you are affiliated with uh, Limbs for Life and you're on the board of some other organisations. So what inspires you to continue to grow and influence these communities? And tell us a little bit about these sort of communities, what they mean to you. Yeah, I think the funny thing is I spend most of my time telling people, you know, I'm not disabled, I can do what you can do type thing, yet I sit on the board for an organisation called the Start Foundation. We raise money to give away grants so that people can use artificial legs to get into sport and get more out of life. I sit on a board of an organisation called Wallara and we provide services for people with intellectually disabilities, intellectually disabled um, adults, uh, whether it's through working opportunities Opportunities and and or accommodation or different means for them to get more out of life and it's quite a bizarre thing you you find yourself in a position where I, I never went and seek these positions somebody seeked me out for them and you sort of that's when you realise that you've probably got something to add you know whether it's um, it's it's experience it's it's the history it's the ups and downs that you've had in your life but what makes things like this really tick is the is the variety of contribution that we have on in organizations like that and i i figure that if if we we all have a story but if we don't have the courage to share what we know then effectively we're minimizing our impact on earth you know for me i go and have a great i was a long-serving scholarship holder at the institute of sport but if i don't take what i learned there then all those taxpayer tax taxpayer buddy dollars 
have gone into me and stopped with me. So I look at it and go, well, I don't feel obligated, but I feel like I want to help our community. I want to take the the advice of the greatest nutritionists on the planet, Karen Inge, from my time at the Institute of Sport. I want to take the the elite understanding about the human body and the, the time with you know sports psychologists. I want to share that with other people because I know I was fortunate to have been in that little opportunity at that time like no different from anyone else but it was my turn to to have that good fortune and I figured wow how bloody much better is that if I can share it with a lot of people and so yeah my take on life is if we've got something and we share it then it's far more valuable than if we just keep it absolutely that's why we're sitting here right now the power of podcasts right love the it power of your story so what's your language like with with new amputees when you step into these environments and people are losing their limbs from tragedies or you know their life sort of changes do you, are you pretty blunt with them like you are with yourself or how do you treat those kind of people in that situation well, i typically don't open with come on hop to it but i, <laughs> I do i do again it comes back to that relationship bit where respecting somebody's life is as far as they're aware, aware has just body ended a part of their life the way they know it has ended and we and we respect that and go yep it has because you'll no longer ever if you're a leg amputee a new leg amputee you'll no longer get out of bed and walk straight to the toilet without stuffing around putting a leg on because we typically sleep with our leg off so there's a reality that that's a world they're not going to know anything about they're going to learn hopefully quickly because they've got the rest of their life to deal with it and the sooner you nail it the easier the rest of your life becomes but it's not always the amputee it's so many times it's it's the family it's the the friendship circles that are associated with that amputee that that have trouble coming to terms with it when you're lying in bed every single day and you look down there's no leg there i mean reality is you're going to come to term with that but when your mates or when somebody walks in and out and then they're getting a, a new shock every time they come in and so sometimes it's about educating the amputee how to survive, but more importantly, how to bring those other people along with them. And I think it's – I don't tiptoe around the the um, the point, the fact that they are an amputee, but also to respect the fact that it's a delicate time. And every amputee that I've ever met who's nailed it in life or is succeeding has come to terms and has grieved in some way, shape or form – for the fact that the life they had is gone. And if you can't come to terms with the fact that this card has been dealt and this now for the rest of your life is your card, you now have the power to play. If you can't come to terms with that, then you're screwed. You'll sit and watch life go by. And that's got nothing to do with arms and legs missing. That is an attitudinal thing. That is the way we as humans observe. And I've just decided, screw being an observer, I'm just going to be a player, mate. I'm going to I'm going to get in and participate in life. And we stuff it up, we get up, we have another crack and reload, mate. But I'm not going to sit there and use excuses to not have a go. Let's tap into that mindset a bit more. How, how have you developed this mindset of abundance and this mindset of gratitude. Have you just learned to deal with things in life or have you done have you been coached specifically? Have you done courses and things like that? No, I reckon I went to the school of hard knocks, I got it straight. And I think I'm one of the few people that I've met who's willing to call bullshit on the way society dishes up what we should what we should swallow and accept 
as life. Me, I think a fair whack of society's got it wrong. I think we all at some point in our life wake up and go, shit, I'm going to die. Well, for as far back as I can remember, that's the thing that I've owned the most is the fact that at some point, it's lights out, game over. And I figure that while I'm taking oxygen, I'm still in the game. So I've come to the realisation that what we put out there is really clearly what comes back. I've been around athletes for a long time. Went to, we used to go to training camps and athletes, we'd all sit around. There's a group of us. We'd sit around there and we'd open our diaries and we'd count how many gigs we'd done. And uh, I had the nickname of Gig Pig because we'd open my diary and it'd be like back to back on different days. And these guys would have one, you know, once a month a year at a school or whatever. And, go, and a gig meaning a gig a speaking meaning engagement. Speaking engagement. And you get paid a few hundred bucks or, you know, back then it was a few hundred bucks. And, and fortunately, you know, things have changed and we're a professional speaker now. And, and I get to move in corporate circles now. But even back then, and I would say to those guys, so, well, what are you speaking about? And they would, they would be my barometer of what I was going to speak about because I would say, oh, I'd tell people about being a Paralympic gold medalist. And I said, well, you're not getting many gigs, are you? I said, well, buddy, I'm not going to do that then. And it was easy for me not to talk about being a Paralympic gold medalist because I wasn't one. But the truth is that wasn't working. I figured what needed to work was – I needed to share what it was like to be travelling the world with people with disabilities, people that couldn't see, and all of a sudden we're hell-bent, we're moving so quick as society, yet we forget that this guy here moving at the same rate, he can't see, that's going to end in disaster or bloody good viewing anyway. But um, So I realised that I needed to, to present the things I'd learned that made my life good because I look at my thing bloody my life's awesome, mate. I, I love being me. It's, it really is fun being me. And I figure that if I could share the way I think, and I reckon that's a big thing for humans, is we are our own worst enemy. Our self-talk, you know, we go out, it's okay to go out and ask people, you know, most people will be quick to tell you, you can't do that because you've got one leg or too old, too short, too fat, too whatever. The people will tell you you can't. And the media will allow you to believe that the world's all doom and gloom. I'll call bullshit on that too. like, Because, yeah, we can't get away from the fact that sometimes life sucks, but our whole life doesn't have to suck. And I look at it and think to myself, if I can share my thinking of what I do when an opportunity presents, I only ever ask two questions. I never reach for my CV or my bio and go, oh, this is what I'm qualified in. This is what history tells me I've done. I never, I don't go for that. What I do is I ask two questions. Is this going to kill me? And I reckon that's a pretty good question to ask when you're going to do anything new. The only other question I ask is, is it going to hurt me or somebody close? Because I figure there's enough people in our world that are happy to dump shit on other people. I figure if you're in my space, mate, you should have a relatively positive experience. At the very least, have a neutral one. But I don't want to make it a bad one for you. I mean, someone else will do that. I want to make it a good one. I want to show you that whatever cards you've been dealt, they can be good too. And it's it's a belief. I found that I'd walk around and be smiling. People go, what are you smiling at? I go, bloody laugh, mate. How good is this? And they go, oh, shit, you're happy. And I go, well, yeah. And look what we're doing. We're talking now because you're a bit surprised that somebody could be happy about life. Like it, We overcomplicate it. That's one of the things I'm really big on when I present is that I don't want to leave anyone behind. And if it means that I'll bring it down to the lowest common denominator so that everybody can enjoy this journey, then that's what I'm going to do. So, mate, it's about, uh, it's about understanding what we've got. 
And if you've got no contrast, if you can't look and go, geez, actually, here I am, born in Australia, two arms, two legs, pretty good family. If you can't look at that and go, this is bloody amazing, then unfortunately, it probably means you've never travelled, you've never been to the children's hospital. I spent the first 13, 14 years of my life in and out of the children's hospital. My very first trip away representing Australia, it's actually to tell my second trip away representing Australia, there's this guy on our team, 18 years of age, big, tall, strong, like we got along really well, come home and literally a few months later he died, he had a, a brain tumour, didn't know that, he was just an amputee and we thought, oh yeah, buddy going great guns, he was a swimmer and and then you go, shit, if somebody like that, big, strong, who I looked at and thought this guy's awesome, if he can die from a brain tumour then I'm not that strong, I could die soon too and so I had this belief that I'm bloody going to die so while I'm alive, I better live. And so I don't see it as a bad thing. In my, my 40 years, I, I racked up a shitload of great memories and I'm not done yet. So that's where it comes from. It comes from having perspective and being able to look at things and go, my cards, my cards are pretty good. It's up to me to find. And there you have it. Undoubtedly one of the funniest guys and most intriguing perceptions of the world that I've been lucky enough to share part of my journey with. Make sure you download part two of Don's story where he continually keeps us entertained and intrigued. For the first five minutes of part two, Don goes into depth about how the Kokoda Trail has had such a huge impact on he and his family. If you've listened to episode number two of this podcast, you'll have heard Kurt Fernley talk about his experiences with Kokoda. It truly is an extremely proud part of the Australian culture for those who have battled and conquered it And Don and I highlight how all humans can learn, grow, and develop from these experiences. If you like this episode, please jump onto your podcast app and give us a five-star review. This helps immensely for me to be able to continue delivering value to you. It doesn't matter what app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes Podcast, whether it's Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever it is. You guys subscribing and downloading each episode is what keeps this podcast alive. And also, please share with your friends, your family, your community, and everyone you believe will benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to give me your feedback on what you loved and what you want to hear more of, so what value I can help bring into your reality. Reach out to us on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Life for Excellence. That's at L-I-F-E. F-O-R-X-L-N-S. And you can also find us at yourlifeofimpact.com. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.